Zechariah 8, verse 16. And it reads there, These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Why are we speaking to our neighbors? I'm, I'm going to try and be more interactive in this class if I can be. I'm going to attempt to. Why are we speaking to our neighbors? What are we speaking to our neighbors? Mr. Stephen did a good job of outlining how we are to speak who we are to speak to, what our roles are when we do speak. I'm going to try and focus on what we're saying, how we're saying it. But why are we speaking to our neighbors? Why are we speaking to the people around us? Anybody? Anybody? Teach them. Teach them. Why do we need to teach them? What? They're not going to be saved. What state are they in? Is it a good or bad to God? Bad. Bad. A fact I hadn't really considered in and put in line with scripture in my mind. Um, I like studying about history and specifically different kinds of wars and, and things of that nature. I just I find it interesting how we end up in those kind of situations and how those situations go. And oftentimes, in such great cal- calamity, you see some of the best parts of God's creation come out. People doing incredibly good things under incredibly harsh situations. But sometimes you see some of the most awful things. Well, most of the time you see some of the most awful things in humanity. And one thing, just one random fact, I, I'm glad I've never had the pleasure, or excuse me, the, the terror of, of smelling this before, or having this scent before, but people who, who smell this, who have been around this, say it's, it is the worst smell that anybody can ever smell. That's the, that's the smell of a burning body, whether it, it's hair or the flesh itself. I don't mean to be grotesque, but the idea of smelling another person being destroyed in that manner is considered to be one of the most despicable things to ever smell in your life. That manner of destruction moves anybody. It seems like it's, it's wired into us in the most basic manner that that disturbs us, that another human being being destroyed disturbs us. What is hell described as? Lake of fire. Hell is described as a lake of fire. Where are those people going if we do not intercept them? They're going to a spiritual lake of fire. How much worse is it to burn to death physically? Or how much less worse is it to burn to death physically than spiritually? And it's forever. It does not stop. We need to talk to people. We need to get the word out. There's, But there are... I don't think for us stipulations, but there are stipulations out there I think are interesting. Let's look in in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 31. And all of the remaining of this lesson will be in in the book of Luke, if that helps out any. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Then he, he being of course Jesus, our Savior, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogues there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. 
What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of them and did not hurt him. They were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Okay, so let's focus on, uh, especially verse 35. Jesus rebukes him, especially, well, there, verse 34 as well. Is there anything wrong that the demon says? Is there any inaccuracy? Is there anything that the demon just flat out got wrong? Demon's right. The demon is spot on. He spoke the truth. Evidently, that wasn't the right time to do it, though. Jesus rebuked him, called him out. What was lacking in the demon? Lesson today is speaking the truth in love. We know the demon got truth. What's the other part the demon was lacking? Anybody? Faith. There's one as well. But love. Love. Evidently, it was not time in this part of the plan for people to know that Jesus was the Holy One of God. It was not the time. So Jesus stopped it. And we see this multiple times throughout the beginning parts of the Gospels. Jesus ceases that information from going out further. What I'd really like to do this this afternoon, this uh, final hour, is look at the ways that our Savior spoke in truth and in love and how he did so to different people. And how this, uh, how he, he changed how he spoke, how he did different things as he's talking to these different groups. And how that happened. Now, first, I'd like to look at Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. Luke 11, in beginning in verse 27. Now, in Luke 11, in verse 27, we have this. Well, we'll go ahead and read it. Verse 27. And it happened as he spoke, he being Jesus, spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this lady, she just heard Jesus be accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, and how he refutes that, and how he has very good teaching off of that. Uh, but this lady, and this lady is within a crowd. Well, in Luke chapter 12, it's described as a, a multitude of people that had gathered together, and they trampled upon one another. That they were so large. So she's in this crowd, and she says this good thing. I mean, this isn't wrong. Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast which nursed you. This is accurate. This is true. But it isn't quite spot on. It isn't quite what it needs to be. So Jesus just tries to put it back on track in her mind, I think, with saying, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, simple idea is, she's speaking in a physical way, he wishes to direct it in a spiritual way. And so that drives us to verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as, a, as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of, of the South will rise up in the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. 
the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is he's attempting to rewire their perception. He's attempting to get them to look in the right way. This section that we're looking at here might be thought of how to guide or, or correct those who are seeking, and they're seeking the right things, but they're not seeking them in quite the right way. Or their, their mind isn't just quite on track. And that's something we run into a lot. There's a lot of really good people out there in denominations. I'm sure there's a lot of really good people in Islam, a lot of good people in Orthodox Judaism. There's, there's nice people everywhere, but they're not right. Some are more off track, some are more on track, and maybe our, our, your very conservative uh, Southern Baptist may be more on track with what we see in Scripture. However wide that spectrum may be, when we're working with people who are listening, we have to try to find a way to gear the conversation, change the conversation, just usually just a little bit, switch it back and change their perception of things. And that's really what speaking the truth in love does, if it is done correctly, it is done to change perception. Because people perceive their reality in one way, but in fact, we're trying to get them to know that what they think is not true. What they're seeing is not necessarily accurate. And so we have to do that very gently. It has to be the truth, but it has to be done in love. If we come in too hard with it, then they won't even listen to us. It's very delicate. But coming in more, the sign of Jonah, Jonah was the only one in the city. Jonah was speaking the truth. And this isn't all harsh. As Jesus points out, they repented, and they can do the same thing. Coming in more, verse 33. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Jesus is teaching them, focus on the good things. Focus on the spiritual. Get off of the physical. Pursue what is good. And then we come into this section here, 37 through 54, same chapter, where the Pharisees once again want to pull him aside, away from the crowd, because they're afraid of the crowd. They know that they see that Jesus is right and that his teaching is good. It may be difficult for them, but they get it at a base level that Jesus is a prophet from God. And if they don't understand more than that, they understand that at this point. So coming in verse 37. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. So we're separated from the crowd. We're in the Pharisee's house. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. 
Let's look at everything that Jesus just called the Pharisees. Greedy, wicked, foolish, forgetting who God is, desiring human praise, and they are spiritually dead in a manner that no one knows of. This is bad. This is very bad. But when he goes back in front of the multitude, when he goes back to teach in the beginning of chapter 12, let's read there. Chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. How much of that foolishness and greed and forgetfulness of God and desire of human praise and spiritual death did he just mention in that? Well, none of it. It isn't relevant to the conversation or to the preaching that he's about to execute in chapter 12. But it is necessary to warn the crowds of the leaven of the Pharisees because that is the predominant view of Scripture at that point in time, it would seem, or a very predominant one. And they need to clear that out of their mind and get it out of their way so that they can understand the pure milk of the word that he's about to deliver to them. But he doesn't go into gross detail of it. Now, he does explain that there will come a time whenever all that will come out. Such as now. All that didn't come out immediately afterwards, but we now know what happened in that Pharisee's house whenever he spoke to Jesus. It's necessary for us. However God views that to be so, it is necessary for us, and that's why we have it. But it wasn't necessary at that moment. When we're talking to people and we're, we're teaching them the gospel, we're, we don't want to dump everything on them all at once. Everything. Because it, it's not quite necessary all the time. Now, like Mr. Stephen pointed out, we're not just going to say, well, we're going to baptize them and then we're going to teach them. That is completely wrong. That's wrong. They need to know why they're going into the water. But when we speak the truth, we don't have to speak the naked truth. We had a sermon not too long ago on how to, I believe, adorn the doctrine is the phrase. I may be wrong on that. If I'm wrong, please correct me. But we're saying these things in such a way that they will be readily received. Speaking the truth in love. Putting those things out there so they, they can be received effectively. And Okay, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Thank you. My thought escaped me. I apologize. Okay. Well, I just, I didn't know, did you have Jude in your notes? I do not. Okay, because, I mean, Jude, Jude says, you know, in verses 22-23, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. I think what that passage is getting across to us is that every person is going to be different, and there's going to be some that we use a different tactic than, than others. And I do think there is a place for us to, uh, and this may not even really be intentional, but to shock people into realizing the truth. Okay, and, and I, I say that from the standpoint that, I mean, I've been in studies before where, you know, you look at Old Testament examples, and it's a lot easier, for example, the Old Testament examples for people to agree, yeah, that was the will of God, for example, you should have done the will of God. But, you know, you take that and you say, well, that's what's happening with this right here. You know, that can, that can shock people into some things. 
But I guess what I'm saying is that if, if our focus is on the truth and speaking it in the best day, way that we know how and always affording the possibility that we can be more gentle and more kind, then the word will produce the fruit that, that needs. And so um, I think the general idea that you're saying is, you know, good. That, you know, our, our modus operandi is to say, you know, we're going to speak the truth in, in love. Um, but that love could be gentleness. That love could also say, well, you know, look at look at what you're doing here, you know, and, and trying to help them apply something directly. So, um, just just a thought there that that uh, you know, sometimes it's going to be with gentleness, but some people need, you know, a kick in the pants to mm-hmm. get them to realize things. So, it just depends on the situation. And I think again, overall, if we focus on, I'm going to speak the truth in the way that God wants me to, then we'll be okay. Yes, sir. Well, let's look at one of those situations in, in Luke chapter 16 when we have one of those tough love situations. That was actually my next point, so I'm, I'm glad you, you preempted it and had a good introduction to it. I appreciate it. Chapter 16. Chapter 16. Starting in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, and this is, to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of the master's debtors to him, and said to the first, How much do you owe, my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward, because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, and that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Who did he speak to? Verse 1, chapter 16. His disciples. The Pharisees are so busy wanting to check trick up Jesus, they're listening in to every word he has, even to the intimate moments with his disciples, as this would seem to be in chapter 16. And they deride him. Why did they deride him? Because they're lovers of money. Their perception, their world seems to be, at least in this situation, structured around money. And they must be thinking, wow, this steward was smart. And it says so, this, this steward was smart. He was fired, and he set up preparations so that whenever he was fired, he'd make it okay. And they thought, okay, that's the arm that I can lean upon. That is what 
I can trust in. Let's see what Jesus says in verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men, among men excuse me, is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it, easier, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. The law is not going anywhere. And these men aren't justifying themselves properly according to the law. They're justifying themselves according to wisdom, excuse me, to money. That's not right. And so Jesus has his parable next. Verse 19. I never really connected these two before, but this seems to be in reaction to the Pharisees desiring to build up riches for themselves and desiring to be saved by riches. Verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and looked at sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that, that he may dip the, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great goal fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, That he have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Who does the rich man ask to send some water to him? Who does he want the person to bring the water to him to be? Lazarus. Even in death, he's giving commands. Even being tormented in hell, he's attempting to give commands. He's so, he, just, he does not understand. He does not get it. Even once again, he wants Lazarus be sent to my brothers. If you pass by Lazarus all these days and begrudged him your crumbs, what do you think your brothers are going to say to him? What, what kind of change is going to happen there? And this message is being directed to the Pharisees because this is who they are. This is what they've become. They're, we, we know the story of the Pharisee who went up to the temple and was praying, and he was praying that, that he was happy that he was not like this tax collector. And that's just not right. And this is the tough love that comes out. This is what had to be said to the Pharisees. And I think, hopefully, uh, I like to hope, that because they were re rebuked so sharply by Jesus, when the day did come when Jesus' kingdom did come on the day of Pentecost that some may have repented and afterwards they may have repented and they would have realized how deep that they sank into human wisdom 
that they may come up to it, that that going to the, the end of the matter would shock them back to Christ, and that might, that might succeed. And that's oftentimes where tough love, in, tough love ends. You follow down this path, this wrong path, and other people will tell you that you need to get off of it. You get to the end of the path, and you figure out there's nothing there you want to be a part of. There's the old phrase, I think, sin takes you farther than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. There's nothing good about it. So let's, we have 10 minutes left. We can, we can look at one last example. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Let's look at a few times before Luke chapter 22. Luke, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, I apologize. These will be brief, brief points uh, quicker than the last two. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 43. And we, we know these moments within the Gospels. Luke chapter 9, verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples... Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will all well, excuse me, who is least among you all will be great. I, I imagine them I imagine this isn't how it happened, but in my mind's eye, they're almost in like this football huddle. They're all together. And Jesus says this, let this sink down into your ears and just completely over their head. Didn't understand it. Didn't get it. Next thing they go to, who's greatest? That's, that's the next thing on their minds. Let's look again. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will be risen, he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. I mean, is almost in step-by-step order here. It was in step-by-step order. It was exactly as it's going to be verbatim. Let's look again as he's instituting the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22. <coughs> 22 and 24, verse 24. And before this, like I was saying, he institutes the Lord's Supper. This is what they're talking about. This is what they're focused on. And then Jesus, Jesus also says, there will be one among you who betrays me. This is going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. 
And this is what comes up next. After the memorial feast that we partake of every week, after that's instituted, and after Jesus says, one of you among you is going to betray me. Verse 24. Now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed upon one upon me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus reminds them that yes, you, you do have a wonderful inheritance set before you. The inheritance I just remind you of by instituting this supper. And then immediately after that, verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death, which you would inevitably do. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Let's read that real quick. Verse 54, same chapter. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter, Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are, are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. What happened in between these two moments? What happened in the garden whenever the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the authors and such, what did Peter do in the garden? What happened there? What was that, sir? He denied him. He denied him. That, that came afterwards. What, what did he do to the chief priest servant? What happened there? Cut his ear off. Cut his ear off. Used a sword. Cut the servant's ear off. Peter was willing to fight for the Lord. Peter was not willing to take the fight for the Lord. He was not willing to take the punishment. He was not willing to take the punches. Maybe willing to take some of them so he could give some himself. But that was not what he, what he was willing to do. Peter was going to be an apostle. He was going to lead over to become the first century church and help us all understand Christ better. His perception had to be broken. It had to be changed. It had to be fixed. 
you will deny me three times. That's why he wept bitterly. Because what he thought was going to happen, what that, that physical kingdom that he thought was going to appear, that he then realized how wrong he was and how off he was. And what that cost, that critical moment in his life, how he didn't do what he needed to do. And we, we, have, we have brethren that we know and that we love, and I, I'm sure we all have spoken to some and sought out to help people who just, they, they've been in the church for maybe, for, for a while, I suppose any amount of time, and they just, they don't quite get it. They're not, they're not quite on the track. They're not moving quite in the direction they need to go. And like we're talking about in the tough love, and this also certainly is a different form of tough love, but it is tough love nonetheless. You get to the end of this road, and you realize that what you thought was happening really wasn't happening, and the perception is broken. It's, it's brutal, and it hurts. I mean, it hurt Peter. He wept bitterly. He made eye contact with the Lord as all this was happening, after the rooster had crowed. That, that's what my understanding would be. Jesus looked at him. We have to make sure that we're, we're helping people break those perceptions when we can, if, if they can be without having this much pain. We have to make sure that we're, we're guarding our brethren. We're, we're fulfilling those roles that we discussed in Ephesians chapter 4 and where this topic comes from, speaking the truth in love. If we can, let's, let's catch this while it's early. Catch it at its root. Help people make the course corrections before things really go bad. This was going to be Peter's life. This is, this is how it panned out. But we can help others maybe not make the same mistakes. Help make those course corrections.